Well, this has been a wonderful uh, 4th of July worship service, and I certainly appreciate the ministry of the Word that we heard from Pastor Curtis Massey. Um, I appreciate you sharing those things. Uh, I need to uh, let him know, though, or let you know, actually, what I did to him a few years ago. We were at the Shepherds Conference in California, and uh, during a break, we're sitting there um, uh, talking, and I mentioned to him I needed to show him that I had the latest in phone technology. <laughs> and I really kind of built it up because I, I wanted to get him really thinking, man, this must be great considering I have white hair. <laughs> and so I pulled out of my pocket the latest in phone technology. Marvelous device. It was a flip phone. <laughs> and so we have fun with that sort of thing. And we're grateful to God that we can uh, kid and have a good time in the Lord about things of that sort. We're always glad to have them with us. And at this point, we're going to share the, from the Word of God the same life-giving Word that has changed us and you who are his children. Titus chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And if you will, uh, focus your attention on verse 11 and through verse 14. Let me read these verses in your hearing, preparing your mind for the reception of the word of God as it is expounded. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. My sermon title, uh, if you don't know already, is this, You and the Grace of God. I may be dating myself, but I remember a cartoon character named Popeye. Popeye the Sailor Man. You know, Popeye was a weakling. and He was in a rival with Brutus for olive oil, O-Y-L oil. <laughs> um, you remember that Popeye had this saying that has really made him famous. He said, I am what I am. And he gulped down a can of spinach. And Popeye became a man with superhuman strength. I would like to suggest to us this morning that the grace of God is our spinach. It has transformed us. We're not what we once were because of the grace of God. We join with the Apostle Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am. All that we are is attributable to divine grace. If that grace not only saved us from the penalty of sin, but that grace is saving us from the power, tyranny, and dominion of sin. And that grace will save us even from the presence 
of sin. Grace is a comprehensive work in its transformation of the believer. That transformation of those who are in the family of God believers began with the initial aspect of grace. And I have turned it first point, saving grace. Verse 11 tells us about this saving grace. The entire saving program of God towards sinners is grounded in grace. It had to be because of the reality of our sinful condition. It necessitated grace, our condition. That's why John Newton uh, wrote that hymn that is sung all the time, but people really do not get the depth and the power and the meaning of it when he said amazing grace. It testifies to the reality of our deep depravity. He said in that line, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace is for wretches. All of us qualified. No kudos to us, but to the praise of the glory of his grace. Grace is the unmerited, free, sovereign favor extended to unworthy sinners. And that grace appeared. It says in verse 11, it became visible. And it conveys, that word appears, conveys the image of grace suddenly breaking into man's moral and spiritual darkness like the rising sun. Here we were in darkness. Here mankind's in darkness spiritually and morally. And here comes grace. The appearance of grace was not some abstract idea. It was not some philosophy. It's a person. In the person of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. He personifies grace. He embodies grace. When you look at Jesus Christ, when you see him on the pages of scripture, understand you're looking at grace in a person. Joseph and Mary, you recall, took the infant Jesus to the temple at Jerusalem as required by Old Testament law. And there they met an aged saint, Simeon. This is recorded in Luke chapter 2, verses 28 through 30. Simeon held the baby Jesus in his hands. And he said to God these words, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation personified in the infant Jesus. He is the one who would save Jews and Gentiles from their sin. He is the one who would save you from your sins. God's grace then is, in salvation, is inextricably tied and bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot separate divine grace from Christ. Those two are bound together. God's grace comes to us through Christ and through no one else. It's what it means when it says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's the person of Christ. Bringing salvation to all men. 
Salvation, of course, is the key word here. It's key to what God has done for us. It denotes salvation does deliverance, rescue, release from sin and its penalty. The greatest bane of humankind, the greatest distress is man's sin and his alienation from God. But God initiated salvation. He sent his son. He sent his son on an era, an errand of deliverance and rescue for sinners who were entrapped in their sin and they had no way out. Apart from him, our condition was utterly bleak. Apart from him, we faced eternity separated from God. Apart from him, all we had was eternal damnation, justly so, apart from Jesus Christ. Now in verse 11... Verse 14, rather. What Christ did, the salvation is really made explicit. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's quite clear, is it not? It's what he came to do. What God did through Christ. The deliverance from sin means deliverance from the eternal condemnation of hell. I just said that a moment ago, and that's worth repeating. We we faced punishment in hell or the lake of fire, finally. That is where we were headed. That was the doom of mankind. But you notice the text also says here, to all men, all men. This undeserved merited favor of God is for all men. Now, let me just walk you through this just briefly, kind of help us to grasp what is being said here and what is not being said. The all does not mean that all men will be saved. We understand that. Scripture does not teach this. We've already discussed the reality of hell. There will be some men who will spend eternity in hell. All men, then, does not convey that all men without exception will be saved. There are some who like to teach that. It's called universalism. They like to say, well, God is going to save everybody in all the wideness of his mercy. No, that is not true. Not all men without exception. Rather, all men communicates the truth of all men without distinction. As to race, class, gender. Doesn't matter who you are. Salvation is for you. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter your social class. Doesn't matter your gender. It's for you. That salvation is good news. It's good news to all men. Jesus promised in John chapter 10, verse 9, quote, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Underline that word, anyone. God commands sinners to believe on Jesus Christ for salvation from sin. And you know, we have to be really clear ourselves in proclaiming that. We need to make it crystal clear that you must believe on Christ. There is no redemption. There is no salvation apart from him. We must make that abundantly clear to sinners that they need to do that. Now, I want to say again, the way has been provided for, Jesus said in John 10, 9, anyone. 
who wants to be saved to be saved. Now, I know those of us who understand what the scripture teaches about salvation and God's choice, we have to rush immediately in our minds and say, wait, 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 God has elected some to salvation. But I want to tell you this, God calls all men to repentance and faith. Men are responsible to believe and men are responsible for their unbelief, not God. You say, I can't put those two together in my thinking. That's, that's hard for me to understand. How can both these truths be true? At the same time, you're saying, well, yes, well, let me tell you, certainly this is inscrutable to our finite minds. But it's true because God revealed it. He said, yes, I've elected some to salvation, but yet I call all men to repentance. You say, I don't understand that. Well, think about this. You don't understand God fully either. I, I would dare say probably some of us have a hard time with differential calculus. You want to upgrade to God? I'm, I'm going to understand him, really. <laughs> Grace. We are saved by grace through faith, are being trained by grace. That's my next point, training grace. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Training grace. God's grace in our lives does not cease the moment we got saved. The moment sin's penalty was paid, God wasn't done with us. Grace continues to operate in our lives. It delivers us from sin's penalty. Grace is our instructor. We're learning from grace. When you, uh, remember when you were little and you had to learn to ride a bicycle? They put training wheels on you, on your bike. It guided you. It helped you. Remember when you got your job, the very first one? They trained you. You're hired and you're maybe become an apprentice and they show you the ropes. They show you how the job is to be done. When God saved us, his work of training us didn't stop because we need to be trained in how to live a holy life. Before you were a Christian, you didn't know how to live a holy life. But God now is training you by grace to live a holy life. You say, well, how does grace train us? How does that function? How does that work? Grace does it by the ministries of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. They are the means of grace. The Holy Spirit, as you know, came to live within us at the moment of our conversion to Christ, at our salvation, at the point of our new birth. He came to take up permanent residency in us. And by his power and influence, he leads us to put to death the deeds of the body. By him, we walk by the Spirit. He produces Christ's character in us, the fruit of the Spirit. He is at work doing these things. He illuminates the word of God as we read it, as we hear it taught, and it teaching us this is how you live, this is the way, walk therein. He is functioning in that way, training us how to live godly lives. 
couples that work with the word of God, which teaches, it corrects, and it trains us in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 And thereby we gain the mind of Christ by the Holy Spirit and by the word of God. That is, we come to know the thoughts of our Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. We begin to think his thoughts after him. We begin to see his will. We begin to understand how he views things, life and issues and morality and spirit. All of that, we have the mind of Christ, which is in the word of God. It's training us. Grace is at work. It delivers us from sin's dominion. Any idea that salvation by grace is a license to sin is heretical. There's some people who think it is. Thinks that, well, you know, God is gracious. He's saved by grace and I have that grace as a, an excuse or reason to just sin. After all, God forgives sin. That's what his business is. False teachers record in Jude chapter 4 promoted this heresy pertaining to divine grace. It says there they turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. The New American Standard says turn. The ESV says pervert. It means to pervert. It means to twist. It means to distort God's grace. Especially his free grace. His free forgiveness of sin. They turn into license as an opportunity for licentiousness, that is, unrestrained immorality. Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Paul had to address uh, this from a different angle when there were opponents to the gospel of grace. They said, God, Paul, you're preaching a gospel of grace. You're saying salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And they perverted by saying, it, what it does, it provides a license for sin. They claim falsely that Paul's teaching meant, let us do evil that good may come. They were saying that the gospel of grace encouraged sin. That's a lie. Paul, in fact, said their condemnation is just. Anybody who would encourage that, saying the gospel of grace encourages sin, their condemnation, their judgment for God, from God is just. It's righteous. The gospel of grace and does not teach any such thing. It, it does not teach that if you're saved by grace and God just freely forgiving you your sin, you can now go and do what you want to do because you've been saved by grace. That is a lie. We need a theological fact check, wouldn't you say? Paul provides one in Romans 6, chapters 1 to uh, verses 1 and 2. He refutes that error. This error. Era. If you would, let's just look there for a moment. Look there for a moment. Romans 6. And you, you'll see. As much as I love to work through this entire passage, I won't. We will look at uh, something here. He's got to answer this. Says, oh, it says there's grace and this, uh, grace is abundant and that grace increases. Why don't we just, Paul, you can just go on and you, what you're teaching indicates you can sin. The apostle refutes the error of those who pervert the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. 
the born again, are in view here. When, get this point, when you are justified by grace through faith, there is an inseparable link between that and your sanctification. Paul says in verse 1 of Romans 6, What shall you increase to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, uh, let's sin so God can give us more grace. Let's sin so as he gives more grace, he can be glorified. Let's just sin because he's a God of grace. Paul says in verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? You can't. If you died to sin, you can't live in it. What does it mean to die to sin? The rest of the chapter elaborates it. Let me just give you in a summary fashion. When Christ died on the cross, we died with him. We were united with him. So when he died for us, we were counted as having died with him. What does this mean? It means that for us, the ruling power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are no longer its slaves. He has made us free. That's what John 8 is saying. The truth of who he is and what he's done and belief in it will set you free. We're no longer its slaves. We've died to sin. Its power, its dominion, its tyranny, its mastery has been broken. You say, well, I still have to struggle with sin. I still face it day in and day out. If that's true for you, say amen. There's some honest people left in the world. John Wesley, whose theology I don't wholeheartedly concur with, but he did say this, and it's right. He said, sin remains, but it does not reign. Yes, we're going to face sin. Yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, it's uh, always there, day in and day out, and every circumstance and situation is there, but it doesn't reign any longer because it's been dethroned. Its power has been broken. It's been deposed. It's a monarch without a throne. We can't live in sin any longer. We have a new nature. We've been transferred in the kingdom of Christ. Sin's power has been broken. We're born again. We do not practice sin. It is not chronic with us any longer. In fact, verse 11 Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are. Consider by faith that you are alive in him. Since we have died to sin's dominion, since we're alive to God, back in Titus 2, Scripture then teaches us this. Grace teaches us this. To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Deny it. At the moment we came to faith in Christ, we made a decision to renounce sin. That past renunciation undergirds 
our renewal of that decision every time we say no to sin. Deny. Say no. 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 I'm done. No. We said no and we keep saying no. You say no until the day you die. No. No to ungodliness. No to worldly desires. No. No. And you have to keep saying no because ungodliness and worldliness will continually confront you and you have to continually say no. 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 In fact, you have to take up your cross how often? Daily. Luke nine twenty three. Daily. What is ungodliness? It's a wrong attitude and response toward God. Godliness is a preoccupation from the heart with holy and sacred realities. That's what godliness is. When you're godly, you're thinking about holy things. You're thinking about eternal things. Further, it's a respect for what is due God. What is to be given to him? That's godliness. Ungodliness is the polar opposite. It's described, ungodliness is, and cataloged in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 32. You go through there, you see this litany of wickedness. The suppression of, un, of righteousness, heterosexual immorality, homosexuality, greed, gossip, all those sins, they're all there. It's, it's the outflow of ungodliness. So you want to know what ungodliness is? Read that passage. You'll see it. The next word here is Worldly desires. Strong, sinful desires that characterize the world. The world here refers to that realm where people are disobedient to God, where sin dominates. That's the world. There's no reverence for God. He doesn't receive what he is due. He is not honored. That's the world. And we're being instructed by grace. We're being trained by grace to turn away from these evils. Those are negative, but we're being trained to turn to positive virtues. Notice three adverbs, sensibly, righteously, and godly. In fact, let me let you know that the Greek word order emphasizes these are our living in these ways, sensibly, righteously, and godly. Sensibly, sound mind in a self-controlled manner. Self-mastery in one's thinking. The reason that's so important is because every action, every behavior has an ancestor in our minds, our thinking. We have to get a hold of ourselves and refuse to be mastered by anything other than Christ and his truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. We have to control our bodies. Paul said, I beat my body and I make it in, uh, bring it into subjection to myself. So what that means is, put it this way, we control our body, refusing to take orders from it, but giving it orders. Sensibly. 
controlled mind. Righteously. An upright manner in dealing with others. We're to inter- interact with them honestly, justly, and fairly, whether saved or not. It doesn't matter who they are, if they're in the family of God or not in the family of God. We're to uh, treat them honestly, justly, and fairly. In fact, First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul listed three behaviors that he and his companions exhibited to the Thessalonians when he went there to preach the gospel and as they worked among them, and one of them was this word, uprightly. Christians are to relate to one another in an upright manner. Fair manner, honest manner, just manner. And even relate to those outside the family of God the same way. The next word is godly. We've looked at it a little bit, but let's further explore it. Godliness is the product of the knowledge of the truth. Titus 1.1 1, 1. When a person has truly come to Christ, when the gospel has really come into their heart, godliness will be produced in that person. Without question. Without question. Not my words, God's. Three virtues relate to three different relationships these that we just looked at. One self, others, and God. Grace then trains us in these areas, and we're to live differently in the world. And notice it says this present age. This age we're in right now, the church age. Here we are. We're, we're saved people. This is how we're to live. This age is a, an evil age. Galatians 1.4. It's evil. Why? Because uh, it's the world apart from Christ, apart from his grace. Uh, that's the world we live in. Do you not agree with that? It's an evil age. If you don't believe me, sit if you can and observe some of the stuff that's on television. I'm taken aback. I said, whoa. Stuff they do and say. And I think it's going to get worse. The only person, the holy person, the godly person, what he has to do or she has to do is say, where is uh, Andy Griffith? (laughs) The show, I mean. It's just outrageous. And what the world is doing, they're they're highlighting uh, things that just a few years ago would have been reprehensible even to the larger culture. So what do we do as Christians? Well, we live the way God wants us to live, and we share the gospel with those people in the world because they need the grace of God, don't they? And let me just say this. You want to do that. You want to keep in mind, don't think that um, now that you're a Christian, you don't want to be hoity-toity. Remember from whence we Um, three verse two for we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient deceived enslaved to various lusts and pleasures spending our life in malice and envy and hating and hating one another that was us before Christ except the kindness of God came and rescued us 
So when we look at sinners, when we see their plight, we see their evil, we see that we have to remember all but by the grace of God and salvation, there go I. We thank him afresh for delivering us and share his grace with them, the grace of the gospel with lost men and women who desperately need his grace. What we do as we're doing that, we do not allow the world to um, put us in its mold as Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We're not to be conformed to the world. And in fact, that word world there in Romans 2 is, is the word I own and it means age. So no matter what your personal circumstance is, you're to live in a manner presented here. That's how we're to live. And how long are we going to do this? I'm going to tell you all something. You don't graduate in this life from the school of grace. There is no terminal degree in this life. You don't get a PhD in Christian living in this life. Say, I got it mastered now. No. (laughs) We continue until the day we leave here and enter the presence of the Lord. We're still in school still being trained and if you had a scintilla of doubt about that just think about that when you're tempted to sin and you struggle with it a couple hours from now (laughs) you remember you're still in school saving grace training grace coming grace coming grace that's our third point here and we find in verse 13 Um, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The first two points of grace highlights, of course, delivery from sin's condemnation and and its slavery. This one implies the deliverance from sin's presence at the return of Christ. And notice it says here, looking for the blessed hope. We look with anticipation. We look with eagerness. In fact, First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on that. I think about this verse often. In this regard, in this world, hopes are often dashed, are they not? They're unfulfilled. Fix your hope on the coming of Christ. When he comes, the fullness of grace and his completed work will be extended and given and granted to us. We'll be like him. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. We'll be delivered from this world. Those who are born again then, we look expectantly, we look eagerly uh, for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, um, this world's not our home, right? We're citizens of heaven. Our Lord is there. He's preparing a place for us in the Father's house, as one translation puts it, his dwelling place. Our inheritance is there. Everything that matters about us as believers is there, not here. We will spend our eternity there in his presence, in Christ's presence, in the Spirit's presence, the saints' presence. That's where we're headed. That, that's the reality for us. And that's why it's called a blessed hope, the return of Christ. A blessed hope. Blessed because the full happiness that will be ours when he returns. 
all the spiritual blessings we'll possess at his return. You've never been as happy as you're going to be when you see Jesus. You're going to all the happiness that you ever had in, in this life will be compared to nothing when you see the Lord Jesus Christ. A time of immense blissfulness, a time of immense happiness. Blessed. And it's a hope. But do not think for a moment that it is a pious wish. <laughs> it's a certainty. It's certain. How do we know it's going to happen? I'm going to tell you why we know it's going to happen. Because of God's character. Number one, he's immutable. He does not change. His character does not change. Therefore, he cannot lie. As it says in uh, Titus 1-2, God has promised eternal life in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. He can't lie. By the way, that was especially blessed, especially uh, wonderful for the Cretans because uh, they were known, <laughs> those people on that island, as always liars. Titus 1.12. He said, you, you, you Cretans lie, but God does not. God promised the return of Christ. Christ promised his return. The Holy Spirit word recorded promises his return. And he's going to come. He's going to appear, verse 13. His uncovering. His unveiling. Of his glory and power. When Jesus came the first time, he came in humiliation and his glory was veiled. But when he comes the next time, no veil over his glory. His power is going to be on full display. His honor is going to be clearly seen. It's going to be an unveiling. When he comes. Who is it that's coming? We say, I want you to understand this verse could be literally translated the great God and Savior, our Jesus Christ. This statement calls Jesus God. Let me, uh, I hesitate to do this now. It's been a while. You've been sitting here. You're probably getting tired, right? Somebody said, no. See, I love honest spiritual people. Let's <laughs> Let me explain why this verse is refers to Christ. It's called Pastor Massey, you know the Granville Sharp rule, right? Yeah, they, they taught him that in seminary. <laughs> the Granville Sharp rule. There was a guy in England who was known as uh, England's Abraham Lincoln because of his work to abolish slavery there. He was a layman and he studied the Greek text. He taught himself Greek and studied and he discovered there's a pattern in New Testament Greek that when you have the definite article, and then you have a noun after it, and then you have the word and, and another noun without an article before the second noun, both nouns refer to the same person. And that's exactly what this is. We have notice here, the noun God and the noun Savior in the Greek there's only one definite article, the or the, that governs both. And they're joined by and. So this text is calling Christ 
our great God and Savior. That's the Greek construction. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where this pattern is seen. This um, construction is seen. So who's coming? Jesus Christ, who is our God and Savior. God is coming. God incarnate. He is coming back. And when God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, returns, he will consummate our salvation. He will complete it. That's what he is saying. That's what we have to look forward to. When God, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, comes. Delivering grace. Final point. The foundation of our present sanctification is the historical work of Christ on the cross, as we discussed in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Christ gave himself for us. You see it there. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. That word redeem, releasing someone held captive such as a prisoner or slave upon receipt of a ransom payment. Jesus Christ ransomed us by his blood, by his death. He paid that ransom payment to release us from every lawless deed. Lawless deeds are violations of God's law. That's what he's talking about. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Purify. The washing of the water of the word, Ephesians 5. He purified us from sin, thus made us fit to be people for his own possession. I think it was one... Uh, commentator uh, you said about the word possession calls us a treasure I love that we're his treasure and we're zealous for good deeds good deeds that's what grace is doing good deeds genuine acts of virtue produced by a loving heart empowered by the Holy Spirit that benefits others that is what he has summoned us to do that's what grace is doing see you weren't just saved initially from grace and God left you alone he's continued to work in you grace is active and grace will bring us home When we're there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, because of grace, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise. We're going to thank him for his grace from start in eternity when he chose us to win in eternity future. We are gathered around his throne, giving him praise forevermore. And thank God for that hymn. Even with 10,000 years gone by, we're going to still praise him for his grace. Praise him for his grace. 
you and the grace of God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for rescuing us. We weren't worthy. Of course, that's why we needed your grace. And you saved us. Help us to live for your glory and praise. Help us to take these truths to heart and um, by the Spirit of God uh, uh, see them more fully lived out in our daily walk because that is what your desire is. Thank you, Lord, that we are Christ's possession, his very own permanent possession forevermore. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. You're um, here this morning.